you need a lesson, raise your hand. Mark's going to give you one. But we've also got the lesson up here on the board. How many of you were here for the Christmas history lesson last year? Okay, good. Um, I'm going to review a little bit, but we plugged in a bunch of new materials. Now, the handout's not all that new, so pay attention. It's got some new stuff. But uh, uh, I assume you know this song, which should be playing. And so maybe it will, but... Holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in a sin and error Luciano Pavarotti, you've got a little bit of Italian flavor to it, but uh, December 25th is probably not the holy night, okay? It's the night we celebrate in Christendom, at least in, in most of Christendom, the birth of Christ, but there's no basis for that day being the day or night being the night, biblically. We really don't have any reckoning of that whatsoever. In fact, if we look at the biblical account, we know that the shepherds were keeping watch in their fields, and the, sci- the, the Bible scholars types, archaeologist types, tell us that that was done mainly from March through November, Those are kind of the outside areas of when the shepherds would be tending to their fields at night. Which brings up the question, as we discussed last year, why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? There are two theories. I set them out last year. I'll put them back out in a brief review. One is December 25 was the celebration for the Roman pagan uh, 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 holiday built around the sun god Saturn, Saturnalia. And so the Christians, the theory went, would try to celebrate Christianity's uh, birth of Jesus at the same time so the celebration would not stick out like a sore thumb at a time of persecution. They could get away with it. All the Romans would be drunk from their Saturnalia stuff and wouldn't realize we were having our own little festival. 
that theory's more and more been discounted by the scholars who really probe it. The better theory, uh, uh, which, which I ascribe to as well, um, is the theory that basically says the early church did some calculations. And the calculation was based on the idea that Jesus died on March the 25th. And the early church, and by early at this point, I'm talking in the 200s era, believed that really holy people were, were died on the exact anniversary of a birth. They got this by reading the Old Testament where it would talk about Moses, for example, dying at 120 years. They would say, it didn't say 119 years, 3 months, and 32 days. You know, It said 120 years. So he must have died exactly on the 120th birthday from his birth. And so they, they, you'd get this, they would get this from reading the Bible, and they would take it then and extrapolate it out and say that the holy people obviously died on their birthdays, and who is more holier than Jesus? So they calculated that Jesus died March 25th. That would mean you're sitting there thinking that Jesus was born March 25th. How does this work? Ah, they said with Jesus, his birth really was the incarnation moment. So he lived the first nine months in Mary's womb. So the, the, the death, which would honor the day of his birth, honors the day of Jesus' incarnation. So to get his birthday, you just add nine months. And he would have physically been born December 25th. So that was the reasoning that a lot of scholars think. Now, the Eastern Church did not believe that Jesus was in fact killed on March the 25th. They rolled it and believed he died in April, 12 days later. So the Eastern Church celebrated Christmas, January 6th. Okay? And finally, when the churches got their heads together in about the 500s, four or 500s, they decided, okay, what we'll do is we'll make January 6th the day we celebrate or have a feast of the adoration of the Magi. And then, what happens between December 25th and January 6th? What do you have? You have 12 days. And that's the basis of the 12 days of Christmas, the song that we have. It's... On the 12th day of Christmas, my true love gave to me 12 drummers drumming. Eleven lords a-leapin', ten ladies dancing, nine pipers piping. He messed it up. Eight maids a-milkin', seven swans a-swimming, six geese a-layin', five golden rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves. Memories of our Christmas party are flashing through And a partridge in a And uh, those 12 days of Christmas are the 12 days between December 25th and January 6th, the two early celebrations of Christmas in the church. And then uh, later on, January 6th, transferring to uh, the, the night of the Magi. Now, if we don't know what day or even what month Jesus was born, what makes you think that we might know the hour in which he was born? And yet in our Christmas histories and celebrations, we do have songs 
and ideas it like this. It came upon the midnight clear That glorious song of old From angels bending Touch their harps of gold. Peace on the earth, goodwill to men from heaven's all gracious King. The So it's not just Bing Crosby singing it. Where does this come from? This idea that it was midnight. It's a very, very old tradition in the church that Jesus was born at midnight. In Protestants, we have an Old Testament and a New Testament. But as we are aware, in the Catholic Bible, there is an Apocrypha as well. Within the Apocrypha is a book called The Wisdom of Solomon. And The Wisdom of Solomon has a passage in it chapter 18, verses 14 and 15, that says, For while gentle silence enveloped all things, and night in its swift course was now half gone, i.e. mid-night, your all-powerful word leapt from heaven. And a portion of the church that, that found this to, uh, as Scripture considered that the word made flesh that leapt from heaven, as John would have said, was Jesus. And so it was when the night was half over, hence midnight. That's the origin also for the midnight mass that was celebrated for Christmas time. And when I say early church, I'm talking here in the three and four hundreds, okay? It's fairly early that this is done. The midnight mass, of course, becomes known as Christ's mass. And we have that by the 1100s in England it's shortened to just Christmas. And that's how we get the phrase from. So, we have these things. What else do we have as part of our Christmas tradition? Everybody knows this song, right? Uh, most everybody? Okay. Now, you read Luke, and it's not all that clear. First of all, Luke doesn't say they're kings. The idea that they were kings that brought the gold, frankincense, and mirror to Mary, Joseph, and Jesus comes in part from an early church interpretation of Isaiah 60, verses 3 and 6. Isaiah 60 says, Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn and all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense, which is what frankincense and myrrh are, and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. So the early church saw this as a prophetic proclamation of the Magi coming. But Magi 
aren't kings. So when Luke wrote of Magi coming to visit Jesus, the early church said they brought the frankincense and myrrh. These are the kings that came. Now, three? How do we get three? Well, you might say gold, frankincense, myrrh. Three gifts, must have been three kings. There aren't three magi in Luke. Luke doesn't give us the number. We just know it's plural magi. Three comes from an early church interpretation by Origen, who if you want to go back and look, Origen was one of these guys that took the Old Testament and the the early church took the Old Testament and everything was allegorical. Everything was a picture image. So he found the in, in Genesis chapter 26 a story about Isaac. Abimelech came to Isaac from Gerar with Ahuzath, his personal advisor, and Philcol, commander of his forces. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him in peace. Origen said, this was, Isaac's a foreshadowing of Jesus. These three coming were the foreshadowing of the three magi who brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So from that, we get three kings. And the three kings, by the 5th century, get names. Belshazzar and... Melchizedek and the Zazar. And um, we don't know where those names came from, but they're there, and uh, no one's got a clue. It's not just that one song, though. You know this one The First Noel. The later verse, and by the light of that same star, three wise men came from country far. Three. It's permeated. It's the tradition. If you see a nativity scene, you're going to have three wise men. If you see two, you go back to Walmart. They have to give you a different one. If you get four, you take one and put it and give it to someone else and say, here, have a wise man. We've got our three. That's all we need. That's all there were. But we don't know. That's where it comes from. Now, while we're in the Middle Ages, and we're in the early Middle Ages with that, let's come to the 1100s, which is when in Latin this song was written. One of my favorite Christmas songs. It's a Latin song originally that's been translated. It got a melody a, a hundred years or so later. But it's a, um, a wonderful, wonderful song. It's dead on scripturally accurate by my understanding. It comes from the Matthew passage of the account of Jesus' birth. Matthew 1, 24 says, She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. Jesus in Hebrew would be Joshua. Okay, 
Joshua. It's just Jesus. We're translating out of a Greek New Testament. And so Matthew's written in Greek, so they took the Greek form of Jesus' name. But Jesus' name in Hebrew is Joshua. It means Yahweh saves. Jesus saves. I mean, God saves. Yahweh. All right, so you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. Now, there's a pun there. He being God, but also he being Jesus. Clearly, Jesus is going to save the people from his sins. People often say in the Gospels, there's no real clear indication that Jesus is truly the Son of God or that Jesus is truly God. That's the way to say it because you have John 3.16. But where does it say that Jesus is God? It says it in the very start of the very first gospel. The whole idea, his name, Jesus, Jesus, Joshua, means God will save. Jesus, give him the name Jesus because he's God and he will save his people from his sins. It's not Adamshua, which might be man saves. It's not... Um, uh, Ben Elshua, the son of God saves. It's God saves. That's his name. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child, and he's quoting Isaiah here, and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, or Emmanuel in Hebrew. Emmanuel means God with us. Now, some people say, what's going on here? What was his name? Was it Emmanuel or was it Jesus? It's the same meaning. The name, the name is a reflection of the mission and the character. It's not some label for social security government purposes to make sure that you, when you turn 65, get Medicare. Okay? We use names now for all kinds of labeling reasons they did not. The name was a statement of who you were and your character. That's why if your name didn't fit your character, Jesus had no trouble changing your name. Okay? Jesus' name, it's the same thing. Yehoshua, Joshua, God saves. Emmanuel, God is with his people. It's all the same idea. The way God saves is by coming and being with his people. Charles Spurgeon preached a wonderful uh, sermon one Christmas where he talked about, uh, uh, well, I'll tell you in a minute because I've got a better place to put it. Meanwhile, we have songs like this. If it works. My computer's a little slow this morning, sorry. Yeah, we're about there. Y'all know how this one goes? Okay. Lead it, Lewis. <laughs> manger, no crib for his bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus sleep on the hay. All right, who knows the next verse? Ah, time out. You don't get to sing it. We have a visitor to sing this one. Maybe. The cattle are lowing, the food. 
That's big. But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I love the Lord Jesus. Look down from the sky and stay by my cradle till morning Okay, that's got a lyric in there that's got no basis in Scripture. It's got a basis in romantic reconstruction of Jesus, but no basis in Scripture. This idea that Jesus as a baby never cried, okay, that came out of the idea that Jesus was perfect and never sinned, and crying is a sin. I dare say crying is a pretty darn good form of communication. It can mean my diaper needs changing. It can mean I'm hungry. It can mean I'm sleepy. It can mean all sorts of different things. It's very versatile. But having had five children, it's been my experience that it's not always sinful when they cry, though it may truly be ear-piercing. Now, um, the idea that Jesus did not cry was a, a misunderstanding that crept in with the church on what it would have been to have had an infant who was indeed divine. Um, Jesus wept as an adult. He certainly wept as a child. Now, meanwhile, we've got Debbie Riddle about to, and she's one of the smaller people in the class, trying to go into the church in the nativity. town of Bethlehem how still we see the light above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Um, that song was written by Philip Brooks. He was an Episcopal minister in 1865 who went, like some of our class, to Bethlehem uh, uh, on a um, trip. And he was so touched by the experience that he came back and he wrote that song to reflect uh, his musings upon the, the time that he spent there. And so we, uh, Dale Hearn sent me this picture that's actually, as I understand it, the Church of the Nativity, which has a very, very small door because you have to enter humbly. But that church was built on the spot uh, during the time, uh, or the, the original Nativity Church was built on the spot during the time of... Uh, St. Catherine, we call her, it's the mother of Constantine, who went over in the early 300s to try and determine where the accurate biblical sites were. And this is where she determined that Jesus was born. Now, if we continue, we kind of digress through the Middle Ages. I didn't tell you about the songs that came from England and America in the 1600s because there really are not any. In the 1600s, that part of the Protestant movement 
um, uh, England, the par- English Parliament, in 1647, banned the celebration of Christmas as a popish holiday, a Catholic holiday. If you come over here to, to America, the Congregationalists up in Massachusetts and in that area, in 1659, Massachusetts made it illegal to celebrate Christmas. And I read the law. The law charged you like five uh, pence or five something. I don't remember. It's five something. It's some coinage we don't think of. Yeah, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree if you celebrate it. Um, and by celebration, they meant if you used it as an excuse not to go to work or if you had a party or a feast or uh, sang Christmas songs type stuff, then uh, you got fined. And so that, that was true until 1681. In 1681, uh, that law was revoked. But that means you don't have much Christmas celebration going on there. Now, you're sitting there thinking, well, what about songs like this? You know, where did our celebration of jolly old St. Nicholas come from? Do you all remember this song? Jolly old St. Nicholas, finger in his way. Don't you tell a single soul what I'm going to say. Christmas Eve is coming soon, now you dear old man, whisper what you'll bring to me, tell me if you can, when the clock is... <laughs> they want to keep going every time, don't they? Um, what do we know about jolly old St. Nicholas? Well, we know some things. They can fit into about two sentences, what we know for sure from contemporary sources of St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was born in Patera, which is over in Asia Minor. He was probably born in the late 200s. We don't know for certain, but the indications of what we see in his life would indicate that. He was the bishop of a town called Myra, and he died around 345 to 352, somewhere in that seven-year range. That's all we know from contemporary sources. Now, there are other sources and, and traditions and and uh, uh, um, stories of St. Nicholas that were built up fairly close to the time he lived. And so we can look at those and look at some others. Um, so, but I classify this as what we hear about him as opposed to what we know from contemporary sources. He was a supporter of orthodoxy. There are credible accounts that indicate that St. Nicholas was there at the actual Council of Nicaea where the, the Nicene Creed was adopted, the Council of Nicaea, which affirmed the divinity of Christ. And that when Arius, the bishop who was fighting at Nicaea, arguing that Jesus was not divine in a full sense, uh, made his argument, St. Nicholas stood up and hit him. <laughs> I'm just telling you what, what you read, okay? I wasn't there. I don't know for certain. But the rumor is he slapped him. It wasn't a punch, it was a slap. And uh, that's uh, one thing we know. We know that he was a giver of gifts, or so we are told. Uh, specifically, there's a wonderful account of a, of a uh, daughter who didn't have her dowry that she needed for marriage. And, and, he, and, and Nicholas would secretly, in the night, give gifts to uh, children in need, if you will. Uh, as a result, he became, uh, St. Nicholas became the patron saint of sailors as well as of children. Sailors took St. Nicholas around the globe. As they sailed, they would establish churches under his honor or auspices all over the globe. If you come to the Reformation movement, 
you will have more churches in honor of St. Nicholas than any other saint, save Mary. That's uh, uh, how popular he was with the sailors. Um, we also know that in Holland, you would have pronounced him as Sinterklaas instead of St. Nicholas. And that's how Sinterklaas becomes a name. Now, how does Klaus get over here to America? Well, not necessarily by a sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. Klaus makes his first arrival to America in 1809 when Washington Irving of uh, Goes to Sleepy Hollow. Remember that? That guy? Okay. Uh, he writes him up uh, 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 and brings him over here into America. And then the next year on December 10th or 6th, of 1810, which is the feast day of St. Nicholas. And by feast day, it's when most likely Nicholas died back in the 300s, the day of his death, because back then the church didn't celebrate birthdays. They celebrated death days, viewing the death day as the day you were born into heaven. And so it's a celebration, if you will, of your heavenly birth, as a, which is your earthly death. And that's the way they celebrated. So the feast day is December 6th. In an effort to try and stop some of the crime and rampant problems going through New York City, a fellow named Pindar set up a, a, a feast in honor of St. Nicholas on 1810. But uh, St. Nicholas, at that point, a lot of New York were settled by Dutch people. In fact, New York was early called New Amsterdam before it became New York. And so as a part of that, uh, uh, they called him the best they could off of his Dutch name. He became Sankni Claus at that point. And then in 1821, Irving uh, writes again about him, and this time he's, he's like on a sleigh, and he's flying from rooftop to rooftop, and the, the legend continues. It is in 1822 when Clement Clark Moore writes his poem for his children that gets published and taken all over the world, but this is the poem that moves the celebration of St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, from December 6th to Christmas Eve. And that is, "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there." Children nestled snug in their beds, visions of sugar plums, dancing in their heads, mama in her kerchief. I and my cap just settled down for a long winter's nap. Out on the lawn rose such clatter, sprang from the bed to see what was the matter. Way to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters, threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new fallen snow gave the luster of midnight an object below. When, what did my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer with a little old driver so lively and quick I knew in a moment it must be Saint Nick. And this is, uh, this is the story we know. And this was what St. Nicholas would have looked like back then. He smoked that pipe and he had the, the he'd, he'd been doing something with those sugar plums. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, that's the tradition. Now, we look at him and our image of uh, St. Nick has changed because Haddon Sunblum got like paid by Coca-Cola. Remember Coca-Cola? Yeah. Remember that ad? And and okay. So, yeah, y'all want to keep going, don't you? 
it's subliminal. After that, it's going to be, got to get me a Coke. Um, the uh, uh, Coca-Cola really um, brought Santa Claus into commercial America um, with the drawings and the diagrams that went with their Coke. Now, Santa Claus doesn't come alone. What about this? We remember the song in German, O Tannenbaum, O Tannenbaum. Oh, Christmas tree. Oh, Christmas tree. It's Aretha Franklin. She can sing it. How lovely are the branches. Oh, Christmas tree. Oh, Christmas tree. How lovely are your branches. Not only green when summer's here, but also when tis cold and drear. Where does the Christmas tree come from? Lots of rumors. By the way, you can get on the Internet. You can find explanations for all this stuff, and 80% of it's wrong. Okay? Like the 12 days of Christmas being some code to try and teach orthodoxy? Eh, hogwash. Wasn't. Um, so you gotta, you got to be a little more scholastic if you want to chase some of this stuff down because it's, it's wonderfully ripe for people to do internet hits and get on your website or get you on their website by whatever they have to say. But the bottom line is, is we're not sure where Christmas trees originated to celebrate. Here's what we know. It really wasn't the rumor we hear about Luther walking home one Christmas night and being stunned by it and taking a tree home. That's not true. But it was probably a German origin. The song O Tannenbaum dates from the 1500s, 1550s, our earliest known usage of it, which is close to the tail end of, of, uh, uh, of Luther, if you will. Um, so it is German. It comes over to the U.S. through German immigrants, most likely. The first mention in the United States of a Christmas tree is in a fellow's journal up in Pennsylvania in 1821. And so that's what we've got. Now, holidays... And in Christmas really took off after World War II. A little bit in, but after. The, the, the songs, this fella named Donald Gardner in New York in 1944, he's a school teacher. And he asks his kids, he says, what would y'all like for Christmas? And all of his kids in his class seemed to be missing something. And every one of them was missing a tooth. And their answers That's part of the commercialization of Christmas at this point. That was so big, Montgomery Wards had this thing in 1939. A guy named Robert May wrote this thing, poem of... Uh, you know Dasher and Dancer Rudolph. and Prancer 1949, and they get Gene Autry. Cupid, Reluctant. He did not want to record it. But, do you but he was willing to. The most famous reindeer of all. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer Reindeer Had a very shiny nose Like a light bulb And if you ever saw it Saw it You would even say it glowed Like Columbus? No Um Like my shoes Um The uh Gene Autry was reluctant to record it But it was number one hit Made him a ton of money 
Next year, he was ready for another Christmas hit. <laughs> Meanwhile, these other two fellows who were songwriters thought, man, that was such a moneymaker. We can write our own commercial Christmas song. So they scratched their heads. They got together and they produced a Christmas song. And while they're in the holiday spirit, they went ahead and produced an Easter song too. The Easter song was Here Comes Peter Cottontail. And the Christmas song was Frosty the Snowman. And I will tell you, Frosty the Snowman Gene Autry was, was very excited to record it this time. With a corn cob. Now, said the night wind to the little lamb. Do you know this song? Said the night wind to the little lamb. This is Bing, isn't it? Do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? Way up in the sky, little lamb. Do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? A star, a star, dancing in the night with a tail as big as a kite. With a tail as big as a kite. Who would consider that one of their famous Christmas carols? I do. I love it. I have trouble switching it off, okay? wasn't written as a Christmas carol. Written in 1962 in response to the Cuban Missile Crisis as a song for peace, inspired by the idea of Jesus being born and, and the peace on earth and goodwill toward men, but not written at all for Christmas. Said the king to the people everywhere, listen to what I say, pray for peace people everywhere. Listen to what I say. You remember this song, Merry Christmas to You? Yeah. And so I'm offering this sample phrase to kids from one to ninety-two. It's hard to switch these off. Yeah. Although it's been said Many times, many ways, Merry Christmas to, to you. Whoops. Um, Mel Torme and Bob Wells wrote that in 1944. The thing is, it wasn't originally written to be a song. Bob Wells was uh, sweating up a storm on a hot, humid summer day. And he thought, if I could just think of things that would, are cool weather things, maybe I wouldn't feel so hot and sweaty. So on a little pad, he starts writing down. Chestnuts roasting, Jack Frost nipping, Yuletide carols, folks dressed up like Eskimos. <laughs> Mel Torme comes across the sheet of paper and says, hey, this would make a good song. And he proceeds to turn it into a Christmas song. That's not the only story of songs that have become Christmas songs because people were writing something in the heat before air conditioning to try and come up with some way to think of something, you know, mind over matter. If I think of ice cubes, I won't be so blasted hot. Um, you remember, just hear those sleigh bells jingling, ring, ring, ringling too. Lovely weather for a sleigh ride together. For, you know, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, let's go. Same thing. Written on a hot August day by a guy who couldn't get any coolness and was trying to figure out his name was Leroy Anderson. In August of 1946, he wrote that and it became one of our Christmas songs. Now, points for home. 
first, let me reiterate again. Thank you so much for sticking with us for these two years of this class. It's been a lot to me personally. Point one, a Savior has been born. Glory to God in the highest. Through all of the commercialization, through all of the gifts, through all of the fun, let us not forget, and it doesn't make us slaves to popery to say this, let us not forget that we take time out to celebrate the birth of our Savior. Spurgeon, uh, Larry Burgess sent me an email of a section from one of Spurgeon's sermons where he started his Christmas sermon with this. He said, all right, Christmas is a popish holiday. There's no basis for it in Scripture. But I'm all for an extra day of eating and not having to work. In fact, I think we should celebrate Christmas six to ten times a year. It's a wonderful thing. And while the world's thinking about Jesus, let's talk about his birth. And uh, I like that. Um, He was given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. If we don't teach that to our children in this Christmas season, we've lost track of things. I was talking to mom last night. She went to the Christmas play here. She said what touched her most, and mom's been to 80 gazillion Christmas plays because it's just been part of her life of what she's had to do. She said what touched her most was the way this was not just the birth of Christ, but it explained why he came that he died for us. And if we miss that, the, the, the birth is, has no meaning absent the cross. It has no meaning. It's not peace on earth and not goodwill toward men if we don't have the cross and the resurrection. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9. Spurgeon preached on this as well, and church history will close with another Spurgeon point. Spurgeon's preached a sermon, Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. He said, you understand, that's the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. A child is born, that's Jesus, a human. But a son is given, because God, divine, gave his son. So we see within that prophecy, fully human, yet fully divine. God could not be born. God had to be given. The son was given. But a, but a child could not be given and be human. He was born. And in that promise, we have our Messiah. Would you pray with me? Lord, we give thanks to you. In your wisdom before the creation of the world, you knew the price you would pay for our sin to redeem us and buy us back from the death of sin. And we thank you that you took on the form of humanity as our wonderful counselor, as our mighty God, as our everlasting Father, as our Prince of Peace, came to earth fully human and fully divine. And we embrace that in this season. But not just in this season, Lord. It's what we live on every day. May we nourish others with it. But may we never lose the nourishment ourselves. Through your Son, we pray. Amen.